I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days and Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And in today's episode we'll be talking about the Kuril Islands. This island chain is located in the northern Pacific and stretches between northern Japan and Kamchatka in Russia. The 56 islands extend for more than 750 miles across the ocean and they total 10,500 square kilometers or 4,000 square miles of territory altogether, making their entire landmass roughly the same size as Lebanon or the island of Puerto Rico. The islands today have a population of roughly 20,000 and are controlled by Russia. However, the Kuril Islands were previously administered by Japan from around the 18th century up until World War II and have been subject to a land dispute ever since. Japan claims the southernmost islands as their northern territories, and the conflict over them has led Moscow and Tokyo to avoid signing a peace treaty that would have formally ended the Second World War. Alright, so, Coral Islands. First of all, we've, we've, we've kind of made a, a tradition at this point of talking about things that we find interesting in the upcoming episodes so mark first what are you looking forward to in this episode what do you find particularly interesting about this place well i find that i actually had to give quite a bit of context in this so i guess uh, my sort of rapid appraisal of a couple of thousand years of japanese history is, is one of the things i'm, I'm looking to. oh no actually sorry no th- there is one thing which is uh uh just the most surprising first day of a trip ever i think uh yeah just the, the maddest coincidence i've ever i've ever seen i think it's just really insane but anyway yeah we'll get to that okay and joe well i, I just i think a lot of people don't realize japan has non-japanese people living there uh like non-ethnically japanese and this will mm. be a, a chance to delve into into that uh, and and a kind of on a similar note to mark's um we'll learn about a guy who spent two years in a cage and wrote a bestseller about it Okay, interesting. Um, for my part, I am very much looking forward to an upcoming anecdote about uh, the the person after whom the Molotov cocktail is named, and Ooh. also some some uh, fun a- anecdotes about our old friend Uncle Joe Steele and oh, his uh, his supremely sneaky nature. Are there, s- in, are there in... fun anecdotes about Stalin? Okay, Joey Kill Kill. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we had some fun with him in um, in the George episode, and also in the, um, yeah, and in the Jewish Autonomous Oblast. So he's a, yeah, he's an yeah, old yeah. friend of ours. Okay, first thing we're gonna do uh, is sort of unorthodox, but uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about the geography of this place because I think that's extremely yeah. important to this episode. So, to give you an idea of what the islands look like, the Coral Islands, they're they're they almost look like sort of a a chain like a, a connection between uh russia and northern japan as i mentioned in the intro uh they mm. were formed by a volcanic archipelago that stretches you know as i said over 700 miles northeast from hokkaido 
to Kamchatka, uh, separating the Sea of Okhotsk to the North Pacific Ocean. And the waters off the island are abundant in fishing. They have, uh, and a few of the islands that we found have natural, ample natural resources, uh, minerals, timber, and possibly oil, which we'll talk about later. As of 2014, only nine of the 56 islands were inhabited, and the total population of the islands was around 20,000. Something that um, I, I found a description of one of the islands geologically, sure. uh, Paramoshir, so one of the northernmost ones. And it's described as being a continuous chain of 23 volcanoes, of which at least five of which are active. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and exceed 1,000 meters. And that's just one island. Yeah. So they, fo- they form part of the ring of tectonic mm. instability, which encircles the Pacific Ocean, which is that's also known as the ring of fire. Ring of fire. fire. It's yeah. a much better name. Yeah. <laughs> ring of yeah. Tectonic guff. <laughs> and the islands themselves are uh, nearly all exclusively summits of volcanoes that uh, result from the movement of Pacific uh, plates underneath the Okhotsk plate, mm-hmm. which forms the Coral Trench, which is about 200 kilometers uh, east of the islands. And there are around, as you mentioned, Joe, uh, there are several volcanoes. I, I believe there's around 100, 40 of which approximately are active. Uh, so there are many hot springs and um, like different volcanic features Stuff. along along these islands. Yeah, there's also frequent seismic activity because of uh, the islands being so close to mm-hmm. the place where two tectonic plates meet. So there are frequent earthquakes. Uh, and we'll need a few one... earthquakes and tsunamis for sure. Yeah, the, there was a 8.5 magnitude earthquake in 1963. And uh, 8.3 magnitude uh, earthquake in 2006, mm-hmm. which resulted in tsunami waves of up to one and a half meters uh, or four feet reaching the Cal- coast of California. Yep. So I think it's it, it might be worth people possibly if, 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 if that doesn't paint enough of a picture for you, I guess it, it would be worth uh, checking out the show notes. We will have a picture uh, mm-hmm. like a map of the of the islands. Uh, just so you can see, like it's it's again so almost it's like, like a, a, chain a, a that links... string of a string of uh, pearls linking Kamchatka to Hokkaido in northern Japan. Yes, they're almost like step stones, kind of. And um, yeah, kind of continuation of the Aleut Islands, and they go across to Alaska. Sort of a similar yeah. pattern of just same kind of vibe, yeah. Uh, volcanic peaks peeking out of the ocean. Just worth mentioning on, on climate as well. It's sort of caught between two climate zones. Resulting in almost permanent fog. Yeah, they it's have very foggy, uh, yeah. 215 yeah. fog days per year. Fog day! And 138 days per year of snowstorms on average. Snow day! So it's, it sounds pretty grim. Uh, it's a, it, it, yeah, I mean, I think we'll talk a little bit maybe in modern day about mm. sort of the, the climate of the islands. But yeah, to, to put it... Uh, as volcanic you know, islands go, it's not Hawaii. Yes, yeah. I mean the succinct version is that it, it it's a they're pretty bleak, generally pretty bleak places in terms of climate and like you say, Joe, weather and uh, fog, rainfall, snow. Uh, mm. They're they're you know cold and windy. All um, the bad weather, none of yeah, the good weather. All the bad stuff. So uh, okay, good. so let's get into history to start with. Uh, Mark, do you want to kick off some early history for us? Yeah, no worries. So um, just to mention about archaeology and the study of these islands and so on, it was quite difficult for a long time because of uh, the Cold War. Uh, And the Russians themselves were not super into archaeological study of these islands. I did find a paper from uh, 2000, which is based on a a three-week survey of the area. They basically point out these difficulties and how this this survey itself was kind of uh, 
rare and one of the first of its kind in the area. Um, so going back, say, 7,000 years BC, Ooh. so 9,000 years ago, uh, the sea levels were rising and they cut off the Kurils from Russia and uh, Japan. As a result, there's not loads and loads of mammals there. Also, we've mentioned that the weather is really, really tough going. There are some kind of Russian-type animals like bear, fox, marten, sable, um, but mainly only on those the largest islands that are closest to the relative mainlands. Hmm. Um, broadly, not much evidence that the area was occupied uh, during the Stone Age, but there were some settlements found in northern Hokkaido, so maybe, maybe there was. Um, one occurrence of a settlement is on Iturup, one of the, the biggest and most southern of the islands. That's about seven and a half thousand years ago. Uh, but that's like a super outlier. That's really like it's the only one found from that period. Right. Um, and it's very they, close, as you say, to, to the mainland. Exactly. Well, the bigger um, island, I should say. Hmm. So um, there were similarities in tools seen on both extremes of the archipelago, uh, suggesting that maybe the Kurils were traversed by early peoples in mm-hmm. both directions. So suggesting like you know trade or, or, or what have you. There's the Jomon period is the kind of the earliest period in terms of people in this area that started when 16,000 years before, but it's really just the kind of uh, use of pottery. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's in, in, in Japan, northern Japan, generally. People living in pit homes, uh, pottery, as I say. Uh, and then quite far into that, we get to the Epi-Joman period, which is more maritime and kind of looks quite like uh, Inuit or, or Eskimo lifestyle, fishing-focused, uh, hunting uh, mammals, evidence of them settling the Kurils around 2,400 years ago. So say 500 BC-ish. In the middle of the first millennium, we have the Okotsk culture, spreading all the way down from the Kurils uh, as far down as Hokkaido. Uh, they lived in big pentagonal dwellings and groupings of up to 100 settlements and hunted marine animals. They had reindeer products from Russia, oh. again, suggesting possible trade. Uh, big on hunting marine animals uh, with harpoons, so again, Inuit techniques. Um, they become replaced by the Satsumon, who were basically kind of the descendants of the Jomon and were themselves a culture in extensive contact with Japan. We should probably point out that, like... Japan is now, what, three big islands? Um, well, well, speaking as somebody who lived on the fourth biggest island, sorry, I would say there, yeah. there are four-ish big four islands. Four big islands. But the northernmost um, of the, what's now considered core of Japan, Hokkaido, wasn't yeah. for a long time. No. Uh, the so, Japanese state is, is, is a very ancient one, but as you say, all, wasn't always as it is today. Originally, the, the capital was down in Kyoto, and Japan itself was kind of centered around that. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of uh, uh, Kyushu in, in, the, in the west, that bit of Honshu and Shikoku, and that was kind of it. And further north, it was kind of there be monsters. Yes. Uh, lots, of, lots of strange people uh, who want to kill us and don't like us taking their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that Japan uh, expanded was that they, they kept kind of inching further and further up towards Hokkaido uh, through Honshu. And they eventually found this, wow, look at this crazy place. It's really flat and we can grow lots of rice here. And rice was essentially currency. Uh, and this place became more and more important. It was yeah. the only plain that they had really found. And that was uh, the Kanto region, which became known as Edo, which became known as Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, so the reason that Tokyo is, is the capital now, not Kyoto, is really just because it was quite flat relative to a lot of Japan, which is very mountainous. And uh, Japan just kept growing and growing and growing and growing and growing um, and eventually became, you know, 
washed out the people from 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 Hokkaido and and became just and, ever and more influential. We'll, we'll cover that. Yeah. Uh, so there is some debate about the Ainu, uh, Ainu, who you're going to talk about, Joe, about where they came mm-hmm. from. But it, it looks, you know, it's kind of a bit of a blend from some of the, the groups I mentioned. Probably a bit of the Satsuman, probably a bit of the, the more Okotsk people. It, it could have been either. Either probably was both. And the Okotsk were blending into the Satsuman from about 1000 AD. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, and then emerging cultures after that yeah so so it's not a it's not completely clear where the ainu came from um they i think some suggestion they may even have some ancestry from from like mainland russia because mm-hmm. they are significantly more uh, hairy than than ethnically japanese people yeah uh, that which... sounds super unscientific but yeah i mean I yeah. Guess well sense. i think they like much more like people from the mainland and siberia and sure. so on where it's uh, it is the thing you read when you look them up yes and in fact the japanese described them as the hairy curls for a long time because they had okay. beards and stuff which as we know aren't super common in japan mm-hmm. that'd be fair mark yep not 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 big on the hair having, having visited recently i would stuff. say yes not 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 common at all really not a lot of beards um, yeah. So, in terms of the Kuril Islands in particular, there, there's a sort of an apparent archaeological gap. I think I saw the word elusiveness used before the Ainu arrival. So maybe two centuries, 1400s, 1500s, there's not really much evidence of anyone being there. In a lot of the islands, were just empty. And then the Ainu are clearly established from about 1600 on. So maybe they just didn't leave much record or there were some tsunamis or whatever. But um, Fair point. We don't really know when or how the Ainu got there or their relationship to the preceding uh, inhabitants. And when they did get there, they were clearly interested in, in kind of resource extraction for trade to a much greater extent than the prior hunter-gatherer inhabitants. Uh, so they would be looking at, you know, fishing in order to sell the fish and so on. All right. Uh, at least that's according to, to an article by Ben Fitzhugh that I came across. Um, just more generally, the Ainu uh, are sort of, they're a, a bit of a hidden uh, ethnic minority in Japan. So they aren't really, well, increasingly they are talked about, but historically they were completely, uh, completely assimilated and forced to take Japanese surnames and to mm. integrate completely and give up their religion and their language and their culture. And so they became somewhat uh, hidden. And there are many people today in both Russia and Japan who are probably descended from the Ainu, but don't know it because it was such a shameful thing that their parents I, would have concealed that fact. I, I, I don't know if, if you, you found this, Joe, but I remember, like, so I, as I said, I used to live in Japan. Hmm. And uh, one of the things that I, I read about when I uh, was researching to go, to go out there was about the Ainu and how actually the Kobe earthquake in the 90s uh, killed a very large, one of the largest uh, Ainu communities in Japan. Um, Ainu were kind of, kind of sectioned out for dealing with unpleasant jobs, so dealing with uh, dead bodies, butchery, leather, things like that. And that right, yeah. some of those areas uh, were the worst affected by the Kobe earthquake in the nineties, right. uh, and that actually there was quite a lot of Ainu, particularly proportionally, died died in that earthquake, and it was actually a, a bit of a blow to what you know what you might consider Ainu culture just because so hmm. many of them so a few wow. of them and so many of them died in that, that earthquake right um so that's just to, to give you a bit of context in these people um 
they start cropping up around the 1200s in Sakhalin, which is sort of the history of Sakhalin is related to here, which is an island yeah. right beside yeah, yeah, uh, Vladivostok. Yeah, it touches on it a lot, but yeah, it's 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 uh, you get it's, people's... Not, it's important to note it's not a part of the Kuril Islands, but it, no, it's, it's, but it's I in think the it's same... Russia's largest island, but it's in the same neighborhood as the Kurils. It's it's yeah, yeah. it's not far west of them. Um, and this a, isn't a... that far away from the Jewish Autonomous Oblast. So we talked about yeah, the expansion yeah. of the Russia into, into that into the Far East in that, and how they discovered Sakhalin was an island. Um, so there were there were Ainu people there. They they invaded the they invaded there in the twelve hundreds, kicking out the Nivk people uh, when it was a Chinese island. Then, as I said a few minutes ago, Hokkaido was not part of Japan at this period, and in fact, it was called Yizo. For for this uh, before it became completely annexed, so if you hear me say Yizo, that I'm talking about what's now Hokkaido, um, and basically it was an Ainu land with lots of Ainu tribes there, and slowly the Japanese started moving north and and uh, taking increased control over it. Uh, this was resisted on a few occasions, like in 1457, uh, Koshimain's revolt was pretty successful, and but eventually defeated and in 1669 there was again uh, another serious uprising of Ainu people it was, it was the last major um, combined effort by the Ainu to resist Japanese occupation so that's 1669 is when, when everything starts going properly downhill so the Matsume clan of Japanese were, were given control over over this northern island to kind of as, as a border territory uh, and this would have, in, they would have come in contact with uh, Ainu people coming from far away as the Kuril Islands. So the Ainu were kind of navigators and sailors and traders and they would have moved around a lot. And so even in, in the south of the island where the Matsume were and where Jesuit missionaries also visited and wrote things down in European languages. So we have access mm-hmm. to to that information now. Um, they would have met... I knew traders who had sea otter furs. Very, very expensive uh, mm. at the time. That was the the big fur. That was what people wanted. Still slightly and, endangered at the moment. Uh, yeah, uh, but doing quite well in in the Kuril Islands because they're no longer no no people. Yeah, not not, not many anyway. But uh, they just the the, the the animal is called the rako, and the place they got it from is called Rako Jima, which is Sea Otter Island. And that is uh, somewhere in the Kuril Islands. So okay. these Ainu traders were, were hunting up there and coming down to Matsume, uh, Japanese colony, and trading with them. And they were going across the Sea of Akotsk and trading with Sakhalin and with China. They were all over the place. Um, but it's very clear that from what the um, what the Jesuit missionaries wrote and from, from what various Edo period uh Japanese government officials wrote. Edo Joe. Edo. Edo. Yeah. Correcting Joe on pronunciation. <laughs> what? What? Had to, had to happen eventually. Yeah. But various Edo era government officials wrote that that this wasn't part of Japan. It was under Japanese control, but this is not Japan. It's a an outpost of Japan in a foreign land. Mm. And that's different. In 1643, a Dutch East India Company ship visited the area. 
to the strait between oh, Urup no. and Iturup Islands, which are two uh-huh. two of the larger, more southerly islands. It's called the Freeze Sta- Strait, after uh, after the leader of this expedition. Okay. Um, and they called the islands Staten Island and Company Island, claimed them for okay. the Netherlands, and were now never seen again. <laughs> so sweet. They stuck a flag in, met some Ainu people, thought they were nice, and then that was the end of the Dutch involvement in the area. Um, so yeah, really, in terms of of the Ainu, that that's that's all all we get. It's just they were there, they were trading, they were hunting. But in seventeen eleven, Russians start turning up. Yeah, they do. So the Russian Cossacks had uh, had invaded Kamchatka, which is that big peninsula sticking out the side of Asia at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I I remember it from uh, the board game Risk. It's being a very yeah. valuable territory. Yes, yes, yes. Transfer over uh, to North America from there. Yep, yeah. which Russians did, and yeah, true. I mean the Cossacks had really run riot all over Kamchatka and had done a lot of murdering of the indigenous people, the Itelmen, I think they were called. Oh, oh, you must if you go to Kamchatka, you must murder all the natives. You, you yeah. simply must. Yeah, and this ex- this particular expedition led by Danila and Antsifer Let me try that again. He's dead, Joe. Led by He's Danila Antsiferov. Um, basically had <laughs> to go on an expedition. Russian. They had to go on an expedition to the Kuril Islands because they had murdered their leader, their general, and they were in a bit of trouble. So they thought if they could go off and claim some territory for the crown, they'd be... Uh... Honest to God. Yeah. So they, um, they, they... They visited the northernmost islands of the Kuril chain. And then uh, th- that leader again, Ansiferov, would be burnt to death in his bed by uh, local Italmans for his cruelty in when his he came back bed. to Kamchatka. So, oh, good people. Uh, <laughs> How do you keep him in the bed when he's on fire? Like, wouldn't wouldn't you get That's out? That's a very if good question, actually. On fire, yeah. Would you question stay in bed and I didn't burn? probe any further, yeah. <laughs> Hold him down? Yeah. Wear gloves, I guess? Rope. I don't know. There's a lot of questions. The rope would burn. Chains? Oh, God, that's awful. Anyway, in 1730, a colony was established on uh, Shumshu, which is the northernmost significant island, northernmost inhabited island, and is the Ainu for good island. It's nice. (laughs) Okay. They did some fur trapping there. Uh, Some of the Ainu became Orthodox Christians and others decided that they didn't like the way that things were going and moved south. Um, uh, to avoid forced labour. That was a a thing that All came right. with being colonised by Russia, apparently. In 1738, Martin Spanberg, who was a Danish navigator, he was um, on Vitus Bering's fleet. He was, was kind of a sub-commander in, in Bering's fleet. So while, while uh, Bering was going off to Alaska and mapping yep. the Bering Strait, um, Martin Spanberg was doing a bit of a reconnaissance around this island chain. Uh, kind of, I think he was looking for Japan. They sort of knew there was a Japan somewhere, but mm. uh, not exactly how to get there. I know there's a Japan around here somewhere. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they, he kind of weaved through the, the Kuril Islands and he stopped in Kunashir, which is one of the southernmost ones, very close to Hokkaido. It sounds very Irish, actually. Kunishir. It does, yeah, yeah. He stopped there for water before landing in Sendai. And that was the first Russian-Japanese contact, apparently. Fog played a big role in why why the Russians didn't get too much of a foothold too early, because they would always... 
foggy. being able to land. Land on one of those 210 fog days or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. That's most of the year. In 1760s, the Matsume clan, who, as I say, were kind of administering Yizo, they were aware of Russian expansion down to Kuril Islands, but did not share this information with the shogunate, who were the military government in Edo, uh, because I think they were doing a little bit of secret trading. Ooh. So to introduce some phrases here, Wajin is what you call ethnic Japanese people. Wait, what the Ainu call ethnic well, Japanese I'm, I'm what the Japanese are Yamamoto or Wajin. Okay. And um, the Ainu were obviously the Ainu. And the, the, the Wajin and Matsume called the Russians Red Ainu. A- Aka? Aka Ainu? I suppose. I don't know. I don't have it. Aka, Aka is red. So Aka, Aka Ainu, I guess. Uh, mostly because they, they, were, they had blonde hair. Unlike anything that was seen right. among the Ainu or the Japanese. Okay, yeah. So they kind of knew there were these foreigners out there somewhere, but all the trading was done through Ainu middlemen. So the Russians would sell right. stuff to the Ainu, and the Ainu would bring it to the Matsume towns and sell it and they didn't like telling the um, Japanese government about this because Japan was a closed country during this period mm. they didn't like trade with foreign countries they didn't like people leaving they didn't like people coming in yeah so um, so basically, basically what happened was um, in, in the way that you've been describing Joe Europeans were just kind of like turning up mm. and had been turning up for a good old while uh, as they were in the rest of Asia as well, and kind of uh, colonizing and introducing Christianity and all these kinds of things. So the Europeans and the Christians rocked up in Japan, like they did, like was their want, and the Japanese eventually decided that Christianity was more trouble than it was worth. Uh, part of the reason for that was because of a, a huge uh, group of local lords in the west of Japan uh, had converted, and they then revolted, and the pacification of that area was super messy. Mm. Um, and you, you find all these Japanese pe- people called, like, Jesus. Uh, they changed their names to like Christian names and stuff, and it was uh, a very kind of slightly confusing time. As, as a result of um, how bad this was, they decided, I believe that the phrase is, there will be no more wars. That was the view. And a part of that was to close off the country from trade. Now, that, that was about over 200 years worth of just Japan closing itself mm-hmm. off from the world. There was one exception in trade, and that was the Dutch, Nagasaki. who were based on a small island in the Bay of Nagasaki. Uh, and the few accounts, few Western accounts of Japan from that era come from the, the rare occasions that the, the Dutch were allowed to visit the mainland or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. But it was a very small group of, like, I think it was only 25 Dutch traders, and they, they traded with the, the, the Japanese government. But broadly, Japan was just a mystery for mm-hmm. for hundreds of years, literally. Uh, and that, that that's just the... the Cliff notes on that. There, there, there was a, an edict uh, promulgated in 1636 on this topic, and it just said, No Japanese ship nor any native of Japan shall presume to go out of this country. Whoever acts mm-hmm. contrary to this shall die. Wow. Yeah. All persons who return from abroad shall be put to death. That's that's immigration control. That's effective. Yeah. Yep. I, I went into a, 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 out, a really nice in. church in the city of Porto in Portugal, mm-hmm. and they had all these like tableaus of kind of famous historical moments in Christianity. And you know, some of them is Jesus eating a cake, mm-hmm. uh, Moses picking his nose, Moses picking his noses. Um, but there was also all of these uh, martyrs that were being mm, killed. The Nagasaki one martyrs. Was, 
the Nagasaki Martyrs. All these, uh, I think they were Portuguese guys who went, went ashore and were super killed. And they had all, all these like super unpleasant looking Japanese people cutting mm. the heads off these lads in a tableau in a Portuguese church. Very strange. I, I mean, I wasn't going to continue reading from that edict, but uh, now that you've brought that up. Okay. Whoever discovers a Christian priest shall have a reward of 400 to 500 sheets of silver and for every Christian in proportion. All Portuguese and Spanish who propagate the doctrine of the Catholics or bear this scandalous name shall be imprisoned. The whole race of the Portuguese and their mothers, nurses and whatever belongs to them shall be banished to Macau. Uh, wow. So so basically, white people, we, we don't want any of that here. Thanks very much. It's probably yeah. a good call. Uh, uh, considering our back catalogue and you know how much yes. death and destruction white people have brought to pretty much everywhere yeah it's not a bad call I think but Mark correct me if I'm wrong that's basically what the Edo period is right military shogunate under yeah. in, 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 in Tokyo and, it, and seclusion from the outside there, world there, there, is, there is an emperor um, well Edo period is more refers I guess to the fact that the capital was moved to Edo and the mm. centre of power is recognised because the centre of power had already moved to Edo for economic reasons but then they were just like look it's it's the biggest place it's the best place it's just the capital now that's it yeah. Um, but uh, yeah it basically coincides with uh, Japan cuts itself off and does its own thing gets, so, gets weird so on that on that topic in 1771 their fears of outsiders were further stoked when a Hungarian-Polish count and adventurer called Moritz van Benjowski turned up in Hokkaido, I think, with fake letters claiming to plan an attack by Russia on the Matsume clan. Okay. Okay. And he kind of shopped these letters around to various notables in japan and going look i'm you know i'm, I'm here to help you guys i'm right I'm okay he was claiming to be like a turncoat kind of guy yeah i was doing some some recon on behalf of the russians who want to invade you and now look i'm showing you i don't really yeah, know I... what, his, what he was after he seems to have been a bit of a strange character um, yeah. but anyway even though this was a hoax various japanese scholars in charge of uh, kind of government policy began focusing on northern defenses because they were tipped off this possible Russian problem. And this expansion of, of, of Wajin into Yizo would eventually spell the end to kind of Ainu culture. In 1778, some Russians tried to land at Akeshi. I don't know where that is. Somewhere somewhere on, on the island of Hokkaido. And they wanted to do some trade. They were uh, politely rebuffed and told they could trade via the Ainu and the Coral Islands. Okay. So they were kind of told, we can't take your stuff. Sorry, the government will kill yeah. us all. But may- maybe go to those weird hairy fellas. Yeah. Uh, further north. Or else, you know, they might talk to you in Nagasaki. Because the Chinese also traded oh, yeah. in Nagasaki. Hmm. Uh, there was a trading post set up in 1780 on Urup, one of the one of the islands. But a tsunami wiped it out in 1780 that seems to be the you know somewhat in keeping with the with the character of the place i guess yeah yeah it's like the fog clears and suddenly the, the tsunami <laughs> oh great you, you know what's good for the land a a, a seven foot wall of salt water that yeah. really helps the uh the, the, the local population yeah uh 1789 there was an uprising in kunashir and and northern Hokkaido it was called the Menashi Kunishi Rebellion, and it was a really significant yeah. uprising of the Ainu against the Japanese. So, as I say, kept pushing further and further into into Ainu lands. This is the big one, right? This is this the, is the big one, yeah, and it, it resulted in um, 
Well, they, they claimed that the sake they'd been drinking at loyalty ceremonies, yeah. pledging loyalty to Japan, had been poisoned. I don't yeah. know if that's true. But 37 Ainu leaders were executed and uh, many others arrested. And you got to remember the population wasn't that big. Yeah. Mm. In 1792, there was a Finnish slash Swedish explorer slash professor slash negotiator slash diplomat called Eric okay. Laxman. Okay. And he was based in the Russian Far East. And Laxman encountered a guy called uh, Kodayu Daikokuya. Okay. And his crew. Uh, they had been on a ship called the Shinsho Maru. And their ship had gotten into trouble at sea. They'd been washed up on the uh, Aleutian Islands in Alaska, okay. which oh, I think was Russian territory by this point. Yeah. Yes. I believe so, they were yeah. the ones. Were, were they the ones that were the only one, only American territory that was invaded during World War Two? Is that right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That chain yeah. of islands linking Russia and and America. So mm-hmm. these these Japanese guys had, had washed up there. Um, they obviously wanted to go home, even though that law I read out earlier meant they'd be killed for the temer- temerity of leaving. Right. Uh, okay. So they'd spent six months drifting. Two years living in Alaska, and then they built a boat out of otter skins and very improbably sailed to Kamchatka to the amazement of the officials there. Yeah. Wow. I think the main official there was uh, Bartolome de Lesseps, who's the uncle of Ooh. Ferdinand de Lesseps, who built the Suez Canal. Our old friend Ferdinand. Yeah. My. my <laughs> Contention that there were only about 12 people in the past continues to be. (laughs) They were transferred to Irkutsk and eventually made their way to the court of Catherine the Great in St. Petersburg. These these, uh, 12 or so lost Japanese sailors are just getting to see the whole world. Um, And Laxman heard their story and thought that repatriation was the best solution for these guys. So he, he made that case to the Empress. Making a different case was Grigory Shelikov, who avid listeners would remember as the uh, the co-founder of the Russian-American company, which colonized right. Alaska. Mr. Okay. Alaska. Hmm. And he thought that it would be better to give these Japanese guys Russian citizenship and you know use them as translators against their will. Agreed. That probably did sound better. But Laxman fought the corner of the, the Japanese sailors wanting to go home. And eventually an expedition led by his son, Lieutenant Adam Laxman, landed at Nemuro, which is just across the the water from the southernmost uh, Kuril Island. So it's the, from Nemuru you can see the Kuril Islands, and it's where they're okay. technically administered from, uh, even though Japan doesn't control them. It claims that Nemuru is, is the seat of government right. in the modern day. And he, they, he came, he wanted to repatriate the sailors. He was treated pretty well because they kind of assumed he didn't know that it was illegal to come visit. But he was told to go away. And um, come back to Nagasaki some other time. And Kodayu was kept under house arrest for, I think, two years or perhaps longer. But um, they didn't kill him. So that's good. And he was allowed to to stay in Japan and become a kind of a source of information about the West, which obviously gave them some insight into what Russia was thinking. Right. So finally, the Russians take the hint. And decide to actually send an official diplomatic trip to to Nagasaki, where they're welcome. Uh, it went terribly. 
the Japanese government, it turns out, weren't really interested in talking to them. They just said they were. This were the, the, the diplomatic mission led by, by a guy called Rezanov. Were basically kept in their ship for months. And eventually, he left in a bit of a huff and started sailing north. Um, he did a bit of illegal trading in Hokkaido. So um, they were waiting for the fog to clear. You'll be uh, waiting. As always. As, as he spent most of the year doing on the, on the Kuril Islands. <laughs> and yeah. the description from a, a book called Hokkaido uh, History was, Both a few Ainu and Wajin came aboard the ship to trade. The Ainu exchanged dried herring for used clothing and buttons. Which is kind of, you know, okay. sort of respectable, nice. Uh, and the Wajin, this is the ethnic Japanese, they were bringing pipes, lacquerware, and obscene pictures to sell. Nice. Drug paraphernalia and <laughs> so porn. Not much has changed. All right. Uh, even, even back then, the bong, Japanese were bringing their porn, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where, where the Ainu were more, uh, more wholesome bells. people, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this guy, Rezanov, seems to be a bit of a, a shady character. So he was annoyed they wouldn't trade with him and got his friends from the Russian-American company uh, Davidov and Khostov to just generally wreak havoc along the coasts of the Kuril Islands mm-hmm. and uh, Hokkaido. So they um, they burnt all the towns and Iterup and uh, Sakhalin. With what aim exactly? Just, just, just to, to just to revenge piss off Japan. For, yeah. Right. And okay. they st- stole some ships. Um, this obviously led to an increased Japanese military okay. presence in the area, which doesn't mm. seem like a good thing. Uh one interesting side note is that they, they captured a guy called uh, Nakagawa Goroji and he ended up working as a doctor right. in Russia for a while, learned about the smallpox vaccine and when he eventually got back to uh, back to Japan he was able to vaccinate everyone against smallpox. So that's right. that's good. And then a few years later uh, and this is the guy I was talking about at the in the introduction um a few years later, a sloop called the Diana was surveying the Kuril Islands Sloopy for Diana. Russia and was oh, captured. Sloopy Diana! <laughs> Go on. Um, so anyway, they went ashore on, on this island and they'd been warned by the Ainu that the, the Japanese wouldn't like that. And they were all captured. The lieutenant commander, Vasily Mikhailovich Golovnin, um, was their leader. And he was in prison for two years, kept in a cage and brought around Jesus. Japan they tried to escape once and eventually realised it was a bad idea and they kind of took the opportunity then to learn about Japan and um, Golovnin wrote a book called do you want to guess the succinct Japan. title he picked for his Two book? Years in a Cage, cage Living turns. in a Cage in Japan no no uh, Cage Turner oh for the love of God it was called Memoirs of a Captivity in Japan during the years 1811, 1812 and 1813 with observations of the country and the people. Good branding. Catchy. Well, it's a, it's, it's, it's got yeah. a lot of keywords in there. That's, that's good SEO. My, my, sure, my yeah, book title is, yeah, hello, my name is John. I'm, I am 11 years old and I like to eat biscuits. <laughs> biscuits are a form of food. Anyway, back to my story. <laughs> so this book became a bestseller in various languages, translated into English and French and German. Uh, and was because really, people were yeah. super curious about Japan. About yeah. Japan, yeah. yeah. Nobody knew anything. Okay. And this was an insight into, like, he'd lived there among the people. He learned the language. He respected the culture. And he re- kind of reported them as being, like, decent, patriotic, hardworking people, you know, as val- as From what I could observe from my cage, they seemed decent and patriotic. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. Uh, and 
the kind of this experience did cool relations between Russia and Japan a little bit because they realized that the the slash and burn stuff was the company and not the empire. You know, this wasn't the Tsar say or the Tsarina saying right. destroy the Coral Islands. It was just some guy. Mm. These privateers, yeah. Yeah. And so they came to an understanding through the negotiations to release them. And there was general goodwill between the two nations. And that will last forever. Yeah. <laughs> they tried to they tried to meet up a few times to draw a boundary, but because of fog they couldn't never, they couldn't <laughs> meet. Where is the boundary? <laughs> Somewhere in the fog. Nobody can see it. Can fog and then a, uh, a final sort of anecdote. In eighteen thirty eight, some shipwrecked Japanese sailors washed up on Hawaii. Pretty far four places. Wow. They're very far. They'd been out at sea a long time. Hmm. They were eventually shuffled from ship to ship, ended up in Okotsk, where the governor was was Vasily Golovnin's nephew, so the guy who'd Christ. spent two years in the cage. Okay. Uh, and he decided to... Put him in the cage? Repay uh, the random acts of kindness yes. that his uncle had Get always talked about. No, he, he thought the Japanese right. treated him well. Idiot. Okay. Um, to repay the random acts of kindness, he insisted on repatriating them, despite the risks. He nervously approached the Coral Islands with these sailors on board, so an Ainu ship with a Matsume samurai on board, Kobayashi Chogoro, and uh, he passed over the sailors. After many years of interrogation at Edo, four oh of the God. sailors survived to freedom. So how many were Ooh. tortured to death then? So. <laughs> were you... <laughs> uh, many. The majority were tortured to death. Many. Some were not tortured to death. But yeah, the basic kind of message of that period is like Russia and Japan coming ever, ever closer and the Ainu getting squeezed mm. out in the middle. I mean, by 1868, mm. there were only about 100 Ainu okay. left in the Kuril Islands. All right, let's take a break. Okay, so as we heard from Joe, Mark, uh, Russia and Japan are obviously, you know, uh, both making moves in this area. Did they did they manage to come to any kind of agreement over the administration or uh, borders on the Coral Islands? Yes, they did. And it is a hell of a tale. As we mentioned, uh, Japan had closed itself off from the world. Um, this ended when essentially the Americans turned up with what are known in Japan as, as the black ships. Basically, they turned up with modern technology in the form of warships and Japan uh, collectively pooped its pants because they realized how right. far behind they were. Suddenly, you know, their minds were blown. Modern warships turned up in the bay and they're like, oh, we've made a huge mistake. Um, <laughs> the, the, the Russians knew about this, though. Uh, they knew that this was coming and they saw the growing U.S. influence and they sent in their man. Bear with me. Yefimi Vissilivit. Pietitin. Okay. Um, and this guy had, had been saying for years that Russia needed to uh, explore their eastern borders more uh, and to, to negotiate with the Japanese. So he arrived in Japan a month after the Americans. 
And he initially tried to play nice because the Americans had actually been quite aggressive. So he thought that would kind of you know, distinguish Russia as potentially a friend. He didn't threaten. Were the Americans at the time, Mark? Were they just were they just showing off, or were they like attacking Japan? No, or, the, or... just just showing off and and demanding a demanding. You a will trade with us. Exactly that, and kind of right. everyone else had was about to do the same thing because they're like, look, it seems there's a lot of legends around how wealthy Japan was, and you know, all the stuff they had, the silks and this, which yep. were very on. Hey, on we trend. want some of your stuff. Exactly. Mm. Uh, and then they realized that Japan only had like swords uh, to defend themselves with. So, um, <laughs> and really porn, good and porn. <laughs> yeah, bongs and dildos, um, bongs and dongs. So, Russia saw the US influence, wanted to get ahead of them. They tried to distinguish themselves by being a bit more kind and decided not to go to Edo, which is Tokyo essentially, and went to Nagasaki, which they knew was the kind of approved trading route. So, they got there, did the classy move, and what they didn't know was that the emperor had just died. And the country was super confused about, okay, how the hell do we deal with these Russians? We're missing an emperor. Um, so they stalled for time uh, to consider the trade proposals. And the Russians decided to do a, a little bit of a, a, a lap. They went over to China, went to Korea, killed some time. They came back uh, and they found that the British had apparently accidentally negotiated a treaty of friendship. And the British had intended to do something okay. far more aggressive. And they were like, okay, sure. Uh, and the Russians still had nothing to show for all their effort. So they decided to be rude. Now, I have to mention, uh, again, lived in Japan. Uh, this is just a, a, an example of, of what rudeness looks like in Japan. I once went to an all-you-can-eat, all-you-can-drink restaurant, uh, paid all the money and stuff. Nami hodai. And, and, nami hodai, And um, they... Uh, Basically, there was a big group ordering lots of cocktails uh, and there were very complicated cocktails and it was taking a very long time to um, the, the waiters and the staff were all just making cocktails and we hadn't had any food and there was very little time left on our uh, established all you can eat, all you can drink period. And I went up to the bar and was like, um, excuse me, in, in, in Japanese, um, excuse me, um, my friends and I have not been served any food or any drink. Now, I knew what I was doing because I'd lived there almost two years at that point. I was being exceptionally rude by being so forthright. I'm just kind of saying that. Okay. You know, we, we would like to have some food and some drink, please. Uh, and literally, they like lost their nut as if I put a gun over the counter. Uh, they were like running around trying to respond to my really, really aggressive uh, uh, questioning, which was basically just, you know, standard, standard sentences. So th th this is just to contextualize what, what, they, they knew this was going to be aggressive, this move. Instead of going to uh, Nagasaki, which was the approved port, they turned up in Osaka, which is kind of Those the center bastards. of Japan. Um, and it's a natural port, second city in Japan. <laughs> so uh, this finally got the attention of the Japanese, uh, who then suddenly agreed to meet at uh, Shimoda, which was the port that the Americans had agreed to open near Tokyo. Mm -hmm. uh, it's quite near uh, where uh, Mount Fuji is, actually. Um, so Pyutyatin, uh, the Russian was met in Shimoda by some of the Japanese top knobs uh, and the negotiations began on December the 22nd, 1854. Uh, Putetien was offering to cede the island of Itorufu, uh, modern-day Itorup, to Japan in exchange for trade rights, whereas the Japanese countered that saying, since Kamchatka belonged to Japan, kind of, um, it followed that all of the Kuril Islands were also Japanese. So they're, you know, doing a little hardball negotiation. It's fine. So that's the... December the 22nd, 1854. On December the 23rd, 1854, 
was the Ansei Tokai Earthquake, an estimated oh. 8.4 in the Richter scale. It shook Japan and the whole surroundings and hit the island, sorry, not the island, but the area they were in, in Shimoda, with a 7-meter-high tsunami. <sighs> so while they're negotiating, a 7-meter-high tsunami hits where they are, destroying Putetsin's ships. Right, that changes so the Russian, the Russian delegation now found itself stranded in Japan, uh, and while the diplomats re- renegotiated, Russian sailors and technicians worked with Japanese carpenters to build a new vessel at Haida, which would become known as the Haida, to enable the delegation to return. The terms agreed upon by Japan were slightly more generous than those that were granted to the Americans and to the British, and very importantly, Article 2 of this agreement states, establishing the border between Japan and Russia to be the line between Etorofu and Urup, with the status of Sakhalin left undetermined. So this okay, is... Okay, so this is kind of a third of the way up the chain. There's kind yeah. of a, a, a big gap between the two islands. A little bit for Japan. Which makes sense. for Russia. It's quite mm. a sensible yeah. kind of thing. Um, and this is referred to in modern day as the basis by which Japan claims the border to be where they say it is. Yeah. This, this is the agreement. Um, so... Moving on a little bit, we have the Treaty of St. Petersburg in 1875. Any That's, earthquakes in this one? Sadly, no. So uh, Sakhalin, uh, the, the very large island, as a whole, on the basis of this treaty, became Russian territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, before, it was kind of like a, it was a dual, duly recognized place. Yeah, they, they could both live there, uh, really. And the entire Kuril archipelago became Japanese territory. Uh, so they gave up uh, the Kurils. So we give you Sakhalin and you give us the Kurils and all the top. Raw Square. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the Japanese used Hokkaido as a base to extend their administrative control over the islands and began to mold them into their standard township uh, format. And okay. again, referring to my time, uh, they, they tend to have the same stuff administratively in every area. Every yeah. town has the same stuff. Every town has a town hall. They all look the same. Uh, it, in terms of the Japanese local government, it, it is very cookie cutter how they do it. And the same, the same systems everywhere, pretty much. Um, so they, they extended that onto the islands. And now all of this is part of Japan proper. So Hokkaido and, is completely integrated into Japan. And the Kuril Islands are now integrated into, yeah, into Hokkaido. Uh, via Hokkaido as the administrative base. Okay. Now, realistically, how much they, how far they got, because, you know, there there weren't that many people, as we know, mm. on the islands, and it was real foggy, and there wasn't really much there. So, uh, you know, they, they did use it for fishing and so on. Um, and from 1875 onwards, there are some minor issues with ships turning up for whaling and hunting. Um, oh, but yeah. Nothing really worth, you know, writing about, to be honest. Uh, and boom, 20th century. Here we are. All right. Hey everyone, I just wanted to pop in very briefly here to remind you that as of this season, we are on Patreon, which is a crowdfunding site for creators of all different types. Unlike in seasons past, we have chosen not to include ads on the show this season, so you won't hear any shilling of mattresses or audiobooks on our most recent episodes. However, if you can spare just a dollar or a euro or a pound a month to help out with our running costs, that would be amazing. This season, more and more of you are listening to the show than ever before, and although that is fantastic, it also means that the cost of hosting and producing the show goes up. As you probably already know, we all have full-time jobs on top of researching and producing the show every month, 
So any little bit of monetary support goes a really long way. You can visit patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast or follow the link in the show notes to find out more. That said, if donating would cause you any kind of monetary hardship, please do not do it. Keep your money in your pocket, but maybe the next time that you're talking about podcasts with a friend, you could recommend us. Any kind of support, whether it's in the form of Patreon backing, Apple podcast reviews, emails, tweets, Facebook messages, or simply word of mouth recommendations means the world to us. Without your support, the show would not exist. So thank you very much for listening. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Okay, so as Mark mentioned, or as we just mentioned, so uh, at this point, Japan has control over all the Kuril Islands and uh, Russia has control over Sakhalin when the 20th century begins. The Russo-Japanese War then of 1904 and 1905 breaks out over competing imperial ambitions. So at this, at this point, uh, both Japan and Russia want to claim more territory. They're, they're looking to expand. Mm-hmm. Russia in particular is looking for a warm water port, so a port that they will be open all year round. Are. Mm. Yes. They had been leasing a port uh, known as Port Arthur, in oh, yeah. China yeah, yeah. Uh, from the Chinese, which was their only warm water port, but they wanted a, a warm water port in their own uh, sphere of influence. Like Crimea. Um, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> on their east coast, they were looking for a warm water port that would be open all year round. And uh, the Coral Islands fit the bill quite nicely. Really? So Not, not that warm. Uh, warm for a Russian. Yeah, not... Not that warm, but not, not, not ice. I, be, no, I believe not, not iced yeah, over, yeah. you know, throughout the winter. So, whereas Japan uh, had its eyes on Korea and Manchuria, and was planning to extend its influence into those areas. Essentially, uh, Asia. Japan. Yeah, it, I mean this. This is a time when Japan becomes super imperial and wants to extend its influence all over Asia. I guess, yeah. but this is this is sort of the beginning of that yeah. trend. The opposite of uh, insular. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of weird how that happens. Like, We're not going to talk to anyone. Being super insular to super expansionist. Yeah. 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 So Japan sees that this is going to cause some strife between Japan and Russia and offers to cede Manchuria to Russia if Russia wouldn't contest Japan's expansion into Korea. It's like, you take Manchuria, okay. we'll take Korea. And Russian uh, Russia said no and demanded that uh, it wanted Korea north of the 39th parallel which is roughly today 200 kilometers north of the current Korean border between mm. North and South Korea, uh, to be a neutral buffer zone between Russia and Japan. Mm. And Japan was like, screw that, we want all of Korea, and uh, launched a surprise attack against Port Arthur. Yeah. Uh, again, Russia's only warm water port, which hit it pretty badly, uh, destroyed the fleet at <laughs> Port Arthur, and was Russia's only fleet on that, you know, its eastern side. Yeah. So all of Russia's sea power now is on the other side of Russia, which is obviously thousands Europe. of miles away. Yeah. Yes. And there is no way to transport it around, like, you know, over land. Yep. So uh, Russia's kind of screwed. I don't know which side to be on here. I mean, <laughs> but, but they both yeah, do terrible things of, in the next both, decades. They're both kind of bad guys in this situation. <laughs> yeah. But, uh so thanks to its uh, modern, rapid modernization throughout the 19th century, Japan was pretty well equipped uh, for this war, whereas Russia was being led by the inept Tsar Nicholas II. He is the grandson of the guy who we talked about in the uh, Jewish Autonomous Oblast episode, yep. where uh, he, he got blown up 
by like a, a, a car bomb. I yep. think it, that was a, a pretty tragic story where like a car bomb went off on in the car underneath him or something. Mm. And then he stepped out and was like, oh, what's going on? And then he got hit <laughs> by a, a second bomb. A tragedy. Uh, yes. <laughs> this this tragedy. was this is the last Sarah, right? Uh, was the last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he would yeah. he would eventually see his country fall apart and fall into fall into, into various revolutions and then, and then into communism. Yeah. So now it's uh, its armies lay or its its armies and fleets now lay uh, in in Europe, very far from the fighting. And Tsar Nicholas II immediately orders the fleet, the European fleet, the Baltic fleet, to go around um, <laughs> around Europe and through the Suez Canal to get to Japan to, uh, you know, contest the war there. And in the Baltic Sea, they encounter ships which they think are Japanese for oh some God. reason oh, and Jesus. fire on them. What? What? Yes. Who do they belong to? I'm excited. They were British. Oh, and Easy to mistake the... a Union Jack for like a big red circle. Oh, God. And the British control the Suez Canal. Of course. So That's the British uh, close the Suez Canal to, uh, to Russia and now the Russian fleet has to go all the way around the Cape of Good Hope, all the way around Africa, <laughs> which is going to take like months. I months? I, I, months, months, uh, for them to get it all the way around, uh, essentially the, the, the entire Eurasian yeah. continent. Yeah. Um, so Russia is being battered uh, as all this is going on, uh, but refuses to surrender despite being offered a chance to do so multiple times uh, early on in the conflict. Then there's a decisive Japanese victory at the Battle of Mukden, where Russia lost 90,000 of its men. Oh, my God. Uh, and shortly thereafter, the revolution of 1905 broke out uh, against Tsar Nicholas II at home, yeah. which then puts Russia on the back foot. And they're like, well, do we fight this war in, you know, in the east or do we figure out what's going on at home yeah. in Moscow? So Russia was then forced to the negotiating table by the outbreak of revolution. Japan basically in summary, beats the tar out of Russia. Yeah. Despite having uh, a military one-fifth the size of Russia's. Oh, my God. It was a pretty humiliating defeat on the international stage, and yeah. it was the first major victory of an Asian power over a European military force in the modern era. Mm-hmm. So Japan yeah. was like... This yeah, feels pretty good. Uh, like this. This feels great. I mean, they had a fifth of, fifth of the military, but it was all in the one place. That, yeah, crucially. Yeah. yeah. Russia is a stupidly sized country. It yeah. be so big. It should not be that big. So the Russo-Japanese War then beca- comes a- comes to an end. Uh, the 1905 Treaty of Portsmouth, which is negotiated in Maine by U.S. President and All-American badass Theodore Roosevelt, Diddy. ends the war in September 1905. Uh, Roosevelt would later win the Nobel Prize for his efforts in these negotiations, even though he actually never sat at the negotiating table. Wow. It was just his his uh, administration, I believe, and his, his staff uh, who were kind of negotiating on his behalf. So the Treaty of Portsmouth gives the southern half of Sakhalin Island to Japan, although Japan occupied parts of the Far East, uh, Russian Far East, during the Russian Civil War. Uh, Japan didn't formally annex any of those territories, and they were v- vacated by Japan in the 1920s. Okay. So, yeah, uh, Japan essentially wanted uh, the entirety of Sakhalin, and uh, Roosevelt made the uh, proposal that they could uh, split it between the two nations and then Russia Russia threatened to walk away from the negotiations uh, and Japan, they knew that Japan couldn't continue the war. Yeah. So they accepted that the, the island of Sakhalin would be split between Japan and Russia. 
So now, uh, after the treaty was signed between Japan and Russia, we have Japan is in charge of the Coral Islands and half of Sakhalin. So that's that's how the okay. situation stands nice. now. They're, so they're, they're doing they're, well. They're in the ascendancy. Yeah. yeah. Great. So so call today and. Um... Sure. Yeah. Uh, just dust dust yourself off, and you know that's that's job done, I guess. Um, after the end of the war, the Japanese government, as we as we've already said, felt pretty happy with itself, but the people didn't. Uh, Japanese people didn't. They felt that the terms of the treaty uh, made Japan appear weak, and this resulted in riots at home, uh, during which more than seventeen people were killed in Tokyo. Right. And the prime minister was forced to resign in 1906 over how the treaty had been handled. Wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, but meanwhile, on the Coral Islands, you've got a bunch of development happens uh, over the next sort of decade, a couple of decades. So road networks and some post offices were established. A postal system was established throughout the islands. Japan sort of pushes modernization. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a regular sea route, which connects the islands with Hokkaido. A uh, telegraph system is established. Right. Uh, towns and villages were organized in the northern territories, and um, village offices were established on each island to administer to the government of each each separate island. Mm-hmm. So uh, they all have sort of little town councils on each one. Yeah, cookie cutter. By yeah, by 1930, eight and a half thousand people lived on Kunashiri Island and mm. six thousand on Etorufu Island, and most of them were sort of sustained by fishing and um, that sort of thing. We've, we've mentioned before that uh, the this area is. Very rich in, in fish, yeah. Between uh, 1932 and 1939, there were a bunch of uh, border conflicts between Russia and Japan, but these were mostly in Manchuria. And right. there was a big battle in Kalkin Gol, which is in Manchuria, where these uh, Soviets inflicted a decisive defeat, defeat on the Japanese forces. And this resulted in the Soviet-Japanese Neutrality Pact, which was signed in 1941, mm. which basically meant um, that neither of them would go to war against the other. Uh, and this treaty will become extremely important yeah. uh, in the next few years. Mm-hmm. It held for quite a while. Not, so, it, not as long as the Japanese would have wanted. Yep. Yeah. But uh, one part of this treaty was that if you wanted to, uh, if one side wanted to end the treaty, end the neutrality pact, mm-hmm. they had to inform the other side within one year. And the uh, the terms of the pact would extend from that year five years forward. So oh. essentially, you needed to give five years notice, oh, wow. and it would automatically re- renew every year. So mm. uh, it was a pretty strong treaty, pretty pretty um, locked in, yeah, yeah, pretty locked in. So um, they were, you know, they were clearly Russia and Japan in 1941 were pretty happy with the borders that they established between one another. So 1941, obviously, we're in the midst of World War II right now. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert, Japan doesn't do super well out of World War II. No. So one interesting tidbit from the early stages of World War II is that the fleet, which led the attack on Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. actually met in uh, around Ir- Irutup Island right. in I- southern Kurils. Iturup. Iturup. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, <laughs> it was chosen as seemingly for its sparse population, lack of foreigners, and constant fog coverage. Oh, so the fog was what? good for one. Fog? Yeah, fog was uh, was handy because they, you know, they were hiding their, an entire fleet carriers yeah. there, and yeah. yeah. Jesus. Um. So throughout the course of the war, uh, things remained relatively calm on the on the Coral Islands. Not not a whole lot happened there. there. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's nobody there, and there's nothing going on. Um. 
but things start to get pretty interesting towards the end of the war. Hmm. I'm going to shout out uh, a book by Soyoshi Hasegawa, uh, which I, I read a significant chunk of. Uh, it's called Racing the Enemy, hmm. and that, that deals with like um, sort of Japan and Russia relationship yeah. towards the end of the Second World War. Uh, so a, a lot of what I've what I've got here is taken sort of from that. By late 1944, Japan's uh, prospects were pretty bleak. Uh, it had lost a bunch of the territory that it had taken in the early days of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stalin decided that he needed to join the fray against Japan, but the terms of the neutrality agreement made it so that he had to inform the Japanese of his intention not to extend the pact, as yep. I mentioned. And he didn't want to do that because he didn't want to tip his hand to the fact that he's going to launch an attack against Japan. Right. So he's kind of in a in a in a tough situation there. Suggesting Stalin would be sneaky. Yeah, you'll see. You'll see. Uh, in February 1945, there is the Yalta Conference in the Crimea. Yep. Which marks a turning point in the war. This uh, is this one is with the conference. famous photograph of Stalin, Churchill, Stalin, and Churchill, and Roosevelt. And Roosevelt. I yep. think. Yeah. So yeah, this is a conference uh, meeting of minds between the UK Soviet Union and the US. Between the talks, the issue of the war in Japan was discussed. And Roosevelt urged the Soviet Union to abandon its neutrality pact. But um, Stalin, before he was willing to abandon the neutrality pact, wanted a statement drawn up in very specific terms uh, saying that tracts of Japanese land, including the Kuril Islands, will be granted granted to Soviets at the end of the war. Hmm. In order to avoid violating the Atlantic Charter, he used the phrase handed over rather than saying that the islands will be, quote unquote, restored to Soviet control. Okay. And included a, a separate clause which pledged that these claims will be, quote-unquote, unquestionably fulfilled after Japan has been defeated right. to ensure that Churchill and Roosevelt couldn't later uh, change the terms of the Welsh. agreement. Mm. Uh, yeah. So there was a couple of people on the U.S. and British side that sort of balked at this, but uh, I believe Roosevelt said it's just words or something like that, something For to that God. effect. Um, so on they, on they went. After the conference, Vyacheslav Molotov, who was the uh, Soviet mm-hmm. foreign minister, was visited by Japan's foreign minister, now Taki Sato. Uh, and uh, I'm going to take a direct quote from that book that I mentioned uh, right now. And in when I'm reading this quote, the emphasis is mine. Let's see if you can spot it. The Japanese ambassador asked if the war in the Far East had been discussed at Yalta. Quote, the relationship between the Soviet Union and Japan is different from the relationship between Japan and America and England, Molotov mm. answered. America and England are fighting with Japan, but the Soviet Union has the neutrality pact with Japan. We consider questions about Soviet-Japanese relations the affair of our two countries. It has been so and will remain so. Right. Sato, assu- <laughs> Sato assured Molotov that the Japanese government intended to renew the neutrality pact for another five years, and he See? asked how the Soviet government felt about the issue. Molotov said that he listened to Japan's view on the neutrality pact with satisfaction and promised to convey it to the Soviet government. It's not a yes, is it? Yes. A very long if not diplo- yes. <laughs> if, diplomi- if diplomacy is an art of deception, Molotov was a consummate diplomat. Nice. Uh, he knew Stalin's secret plan to attack Japan as well as the prize that he, he had obtained at Yalta. And I just wanted to uh, take a very brief tangent here um, to uh, tell the story of where the Molotov cocktail came from. So Molotov was, uh, the anybody who knows kind of World War II history, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of yep. 1939 divide Europe into different spheres of influence. 
So the Nazis were like, we'll take Poland, and Soviets were like, we'll take Finland. Yep. And in 1939, then the Soviets invaded Finland, and in uh, Soviet propaganda, uh, Molotov said that the bombs that were falling on the Finnish troops were quote unquote bread baskets. Uh, they he 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 essentially said they were they were dropping aid on Finland, whereas they were dropping bombs. Okay, uh, and the Finnish, the Finnish then uh, dubbed the Soviet cluster bombs uh, Molotov bread baskets. So <laughs> nice. then, when uh, when the Soviets rolled into Finland in tanks, and uh, the Finns had improvised these, uh, you know, uh, makeshift bombs to use right. against the tanks, they nicknamed them uh, Molotov cocktails, which were drinks to go with the food that Molotov had provided. Oh wow, so, cool. Yeah, I. I I I thought I thought it was like uh, I had heard a different version of that uh, when I was in school, right. which was uh, that it was just essentially he, he was basically telling the Russians to like pick up you know piles of dirt to throw. They can be Molotov dirts. Throw 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 some petrol at them. That'll be Molotov guy. Like he was just literally just the desperation right. of the Russians was just like. And if if you're hungry, uh, eat your own poop. Uh, like it was like yeah. just in in the uh, in, in the guide for uh, impoverished Russians who are about to get marmalized by Hitler. Uh, right. But yeah, okay, I like that version more. Yeah. So on April first, nineteen forty-five, U.S. forces land at Okinawa and begin a battle which would last for almost three months. Uh, will be one of the decisive battles towards the end of the war, and re- result in approximately one hundred and sixty thousand casualties. On April 5th, Molotov informs the Japanese that the USSR will not be renewing the neutrality pact just a couple weeks after his previous statement, and the Japanese Uh-oh. are then on their own. Emperor Hirohito then in- intensifies his resistance uh, in Okinawa, hoping to inflict enough damage to gain favorable terms to end the war on. Uh, the US insisted that uh, unconditional surrender was the only way to end the war, so Roosevelt was really like hammering this unconditional surrender. Uh, no... Like terms, no, uh, you know, special mm. agreements with Japan. Spots, coconuts. Total unconditional. Yeah. They had been very, bo- very bad. Like they, they yes, done they a lot of terrible things in Asia. But after the death of Roosevelt in that same April, when the Battle mm. of Okinawa had started, uh, Harry S. Truman becomes U.S. president, and he begins to consider other options. <laughs> uh, so he's a bit, he's a bit Ooh, more uh, an understatement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he apparently was considering like uh, giving a conditional, you know, granting a conditional surrender to Japan, but that was that isn't uh, what he did in the end, though. Is it? <laughs> not that how is it not went. what he did in the end, nope. as we will see. The next month, May seventh, uh, Germany falls, and Japan vows to fight on, and all eyes turn to the east. Uh, on June twenty second, the Battle of Okinawa ends with an Allied victory. Uh, so Japan is is really in a corner right now. On July seventeenth, and this is all nineteen forty five, by the way. Uh, July seventeenth. The Potsdam Conference in occupied Germany is held between the USSR, UK, and US leaders. Truman uh, vaguely mentions an unspecified, quote, powerful new weapon that the US has developed. Uh, And Japan is given an ultimatum to surrender in the form of the Potsdam Declaration. Uh, That was signed by the United States, Great Britain, and China, not the USSR, because they hadn't declared war on Japan yet, although they had informed them they weren't going to renew the neutrality agreement. Ah. So Japan is warned that it will meet prompt and utter destruction if it doesn't surrender immediately. Japan doesn't respond to yeah. uh, this ultimatum. Stalin now can see that the end of the war is near, and he is he starts to push for Soviet participation in the attacks against Japan, knowing that if he has a part to play in the war against yeah. Japan, that, that he will get a greater share of the spoils, yep. which is really what he's after. 6th of August, 1945, the first atomic bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. So, sorry, uh, Mark, I assume you've also been to Hiroshima, have you? 
Yeah, I, mm. I used to go. I used to go to Hiroshima a lot. It was quite near where I lived. Um, that that single building that survived the blast, this mangled the, the, cage of the Genbaku Dome glass. It, the, the bomb exploded directly above it, and because it's a dome, it spread out the pressure evenly. Mm. Uh, so it's like you know, putting pressure on an egg. Uh, you can put a lot of pressure on an egg before it, before it breaks. Put it on the right point. Uh, and it's called the Genbaku Dome, or the A-bomb Dome, uh, rather unsensitive. It was actually the Hiroshima kind of industrial uh, conference mm. site. But the 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 maddest it's, uh, thing—it's a chilling, a chilling, a really terrifying structure. place to go. Yeah, and, it's, it's, and it's everything else is flattened, so the rest even. of the city is new. But, uh, yeah. but just just one just one mad point. Uh, just the, the, one of the things, apart from you know melting fingernails and stuff that I saw in the museum, which is really uh, horrific. But um, <laughs> they because the Americans knew they were going to bomb Hiroshima. They stopped bombing it. Uh, they, for for uh, the days before uh, Hiroshima was bombed, they uh, stopped. They stopped bombing it, uh, and Hiroshima was like, "Yay, the Americans stopped bombing us!" And they had no idea what oh, was no. about to happen to them. And it's just a really terrifying, awful kind of element of it. But anyway, definitely yeah. worth if if you're in any way curious about about war. That that museum is a spectacular museum. Yeah, it's mm. haunting. Very honest as well about. Japan's mm, yeah, uh, yeah. crimes. Oh, it's it's mad. Awesome. It's like yeah. So we had enslaved all of the Koreans. That was bad. Yeah. Uh, There's mm. actually a mound where Koreans were were buried. Uh, mm. they, they, I think there was Koreans being held nearby and then killed. Thousands. They were being used to clear the streets after bombings. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. Oh god. Yeah. Sorry that's to a, interrupt. That's a, a fun side note. Uh, yeah. No. No problem. So on the 8th of August, just two days after the bomb drops on Hiroshima, Stalin declares war on Japan. Uh, well talk about an opportunistic moment. Yeah. And invades Manchuria. On the 9th of August, the very next day, the US drops a second bomb on Nagasaki. And on August 15th, Emperor Hirohito announces his acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, but does not sign a formal declaration of surrender. That'll come a couple of weeks later. And that's important because that's when Stalin decides to make his move against the Coral Islands. So the Red Army seizes the Kurils in a series of landings between August 18th and August 31st, 1945. Uh, The invasion started three days after the Emperor announced the surrender of Japan, which was on August 15th, and continued through the start of the US occupation of Japan, which started on August 28th, and stopped just before Japan signed the surrender terms on September 2nd. So there's like a two-week period there where Stalin's like, okay, they've said they're going to surrender, but they haven't signed the terms Grab, grab, grab. Grab, grab, grab. Um, Take as many islands as you can fit in your pockets. Yes. On August 23rd, the 20,000 strong Japanese garrisons on the islands were ordered to surrender as part of a general surrender of Japan. But some of them decided to ignore the order and continue to resist Soviet occupation. The Battle of Shumshu, which went from the 18th to the 23rd of August, was the first and most notable invasion uh, on the Kurils. Roughly 500 people were killed uh, on either side before the resistance was put down by the Red Army. And uh, again, this was this battle was fought this, despite the fact that Japanese forces had signed an unconditional surrender agreement. Yeah. Um, the Red Army was like, nah, we're, we're, we're just going to invade you guys anyway. Yeah. Some of the last battles of World War II. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The rest of the Red Army landings in the Kuril Islands were mostly met unopposed. And the entire Japanese civilian population of roughly 17,000 was expelled by early 1946. Right. Um, an interesting side note here as well is that Stalin had initially been even more greedy and had, had envisioned that the USSR would also take Hokkaido. Okay. Wow. And 
Yeah. So I found a, a interesting article about this. We'll, we'll link it in the show notes from a Foreign Policy magazine. Okay. Uh, entitled "Did Hiroshima Save Japan from Soviet Occupation?" Mm. And it's uh, just take a brief quote from it here. Stalin had his eyes on a on the big prize. The detailed Soviet operational plans published recently for the first time show that all the pieces have been put in place for a swift Soviet occupation. All that was missing was a final go-ahead from Stalin. On August 16th, the Soviet leader asked U.S. President Harry S. Truman to acquiesce in his quote-unquote modest wish or risk, quote, offending Russian public opinion. Mm. Although just months earlier, the U.S. War Department had considered letting Soviets occupy Hokkaido and even parts of Honshu, uh, Hiroshima Oof. had clearly changed things for for Truman, and possession of the his mighty new weapon gave Truman the confidence to set the terms of his relationship with Stalin. Yeah. On August 18th, Truman bluntly turned Uncle Joe down. Stalin procrastinated, weighing the pros and cons, and two days before the planned August 24th landing on Hokkaido, he called off the operation. Yeah. So he, you know, that... That would be a different world. That would be a very different world. I mean, I read a bunch of analysis on this, and it, it sort of says that you know, it never would have lasted and the U.S. would never would have accepted a divided mm. Japan. Yeah. But that was kind of Stalin's idea was was sort of to take the northern half of Japan and and kind of convert and it into have a, a Soviet the Japanese puppet state. population of Hokkaido. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. He could have killed him. Hmm. Yeah. He's pretty good at that. So in the end, Stalin gained the curls, but had to abandon his plan to capture Hokkaido. And right. the uh, Soviets argued for their occupation of the islands, not on the basis of historical precedent, but on the basis of national security and the importance of a presence in the Pacific. Okay. And again, just to put a put a end note on this, I've got another uh, quote from that book that I mentioned earlier. It says, in the end, Stalin succeeded in capturing all the Kurils, including the Habamai group, which he had not expected to acquire. He succeeded not because the military operations were executed brilliantly, in fact, Soviet military operations in the Kurils were marred by haste, lack of preparation, equipment, and information, and even poor communications. If the Soviet operations succeeded, it was mainly because the Japanese were prepared to surrender, and the Americans were not much interested in the Kurils. On the whole, both sides were satisfied because the Yalta limit was more or less observed. Mm. So, yeah, just to just to summarize, I guess, so now we have uh, Russia has the entirety of Sakhalin Island, I think. Yep, and uh, all of the curls as well, and that's yep. sort of where we're at now, yep. pretty much uh, as of modern day. Yeah, so we take a very brief break, and then uh, mm-hmm. we'll we'll come back with sort of the last half of the twentieth century. Yep, yep. Not a lot has changed um, since that time. It's been a lot of talking, but basically Russia maintains that all the Kuril Islands, including those that Japan calls the Northern Territories, are legally part of Russia. All as your a result Kuril of the are belong to us. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and that the acquisition was, was legitimate because of war. And Japan claims that, the uh, according to the official pamphlet of the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, mm-hmm that the Cairo Declaration and the Potsdam Declaration did not apply to the Northern Territories because those islands never belonged to Russia, even before 1904. 
mm-hmm. and Russia had not previously claimed the disputed islands since mm-hmm. it began diplomatic relations with Japan in 1855. So these islands could not be considered part of the territories acquired by Japan by violence and greed, which is the terminology used in yeah. in the various treaties. Um, so that's kind of the two positions. There was a peace treaty signed in San Francisco in 1951 between the Allies and Japan to kind of finalise a lot of the peace accords. And uh, in this, Japan renounced all right, title and claim to the Coral Islands, as well as some other possessions. Um, but of course, the the dispute comes from the fact that the Japanese, again, don't believe this is, that these four yeah, islands... They, they call them part of the Northern Territories. The Northern Territories. Again. Yeah. They don't believe that they're part of the Coral Islands. Everything up to this line where they, this gap where the border was drawn in the, the St. Petersburg Treaty... Is, so that's that's where the, the the debate centers over now. Is that wording? I suppose is still yeah, is wording um, and uh, is those just those four southernmost islands is, yeah. is Japan is like you can keep the rest of them, but th- those four just, southernmost just, ones are just just to point out that this is not a unique situation. Japan also has a similar complaint against Korea about some other mm. Kip Island, and they also have a complaint and against China. the Chinese about some other Kip Island. A bunch of Kip <laughs> Islands, and they're really just because the Japanese have massive uh, nationalist tendencies within their, yes, their culture, it's and particularly it's really now. just uh, dog whistles for them. That's and the Sh- Shinzo Abe is, is very nationalistic with this kind of stuff, he, isn't he? He, he, he is. He, he's kind of used them as a, as a constituent part. Uh, but they, the, the Northern Territories are a particular rallying call because there's the, the sort of the people who were expelled, who can't go back and visit their ancestors' graves kind of stuff. It's got a lot more emotional mm-hmm. appeal than, than oh, a rock sure. that and, China and, wants. And the Japanese has, you know... All, all of those Korean women that they stole and forced to work as prostitutes, but they, yeah. they, that doesn't seem to work so well on them. So it's, it's very, very choosy, choosy this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you can see, Mark's time in Japan made him uh, a great <sighs> everything <laughs> Japanese, uh, unquestioning. Um, anyway. It is a Japanese way, Mark Sensei. What? What does that even mean? <laughs> At least they treated you with respect. They went through my bins, Joe. It was insane. But they called you sensei. Oh, come on. They went through my damn bins. <laughs> did did they find anything? They, they found, like, old bus tickets and stuff, and they brought them into my job. Like, Mark, Mark sensei, uh, privacy is very important in Japan. You need to be more careful with your garbage. I was like, what? <laughs> and they, they handed me a pile of my garbage in my office. It, it was not a good day. Okay. Uh, anyway, so uh, as we said, all of the Japanese civilians were expelled, all of them, completely yep. emptied the islands. Stalin ordered every town destroyed, every Ainu and Japanese town that was there flattened. That sounds like Stalin. I yeah. told you. And Soviet towns were built in their place, and Soviet citizens brought in to populate these cheery towns full of fog. Yeah. It's 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 weird. It's the same kind of thing as the Jewish autonomous oblast. It's like yeah. uh, we need we we need people to live here in order to kind of you know assert our claim over this place. So yeah. can you guys just move here, please? I, w- um, I wonder how enthusiastic the new inhabitants of the Kurils yeah. actually were. Probably yeah. not amazingly so. Not, just a blitz not, not super keen. Few true through a few events in um. So so we mentioned earthquakes and tsunamis being a problem. Uh, two big events that ended up causing a loss of population were uh, 1952, the Severo-Kurilsk earthquake. It, it, co- it caused a tsunami which hit the third island from the north, Paramashir, 
and destroyed all the coastal settlements. So of a population of 6,000 people, 2.3,000 died. Um, wow. Okay. And the remaining survivors were evacuated to Russia and the settlement was built in another place. So that yep. sounds pretty okay. rough. Good for them. Okay, that was a mistake to build that there. Uh, yeah. And 1994, you know, Kunashir, the southernmost island, had a similar thing after an earthquake where uh, basically a third of the island's population just left and didn't return. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, not super nice places to live, apparently. Nope. Yep. Very, very uh, leavable. Not very livable, very leavable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, th- throughout the decade since 1945, there's been various negotiations. The Russians have occasionally offered two or three islands to the Japanese kind Mostly of knowing uninhabited they accept ones, it. right? Yeah. The, the ones that are rocks, yeah. Yeah. Um, which yeah, hasn't been accepted. Rock. <laughs> yeah. The 70s improved relations because, I mean, they started trading with each other and sort of put things back on the table. Uh, Japan ended up being the biggest trading partner after West Germany during the 70s, four billion per annum in trade. But I think it's important to note as well, and we, we did say it at the top of the episode, but they're still technically at war over this di- dispute. Like, Russia and Japan have not signed a formal Well, peace they haven't treaty signed a peace War treaty, II. but they're not at yeah. war. They're not at war. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, yeah. I but mean, world, you could say World War II hasn't been concluded. Yes. Okay. That's, that's a fair way to put it. But, but nobody is at war with each other. Not formally been concluded. But so yeah, they've, they've, they've signed truces and stuff, but it's different to a peace yes. treaty. Sure. Um,. But so like it's still, the, the, you know, very much a, an outstanding yeah. issue that neither of them are, are willing to let go. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, nothing really changed. I mean, when 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 the communist when the Soviet Union collapsed, yeah, um, Yeltsin took a kind of a hardline stance in this. The, the first Russian president after communism, yeah. Um, he, he, I think Gorbachev had been softening his position a little bit, trying to be friendly with Asia, yeah. but Yeltsin was like, no, nationalism. All the way. Well, Yeltsin was also kind of defending against a nationalist coup as well. So yeah. he needed to be a bit nationalist himself in order to kind of Didn't keep in power. And, and he couldn't, yeah, exactly. He couldn't be seen to be soft. Yeah. So there wasn't much to be much... Um, Anything. Yeah. <laughs> but basically... Not many people. Not we many have changes. a stalemate. There's not many people. Um, I, I watched a, a short documentary by the Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation. ABC, yeah. and it was Australian ABC network. Um, it was very interesting, and it kind of went through particularly Kunashir and how everything is there nowadays, or in the recent past. And it followed a group of exiled Japanese people who were allowed to go back and visit occasionally uh, to visit their graves of relatives and stuff. So things are in a better place now. But a quote from Ken Takamoto, one of the uh, one of the people who went back to visit the island, he, he he was asked to describe what he felt visiting. He said, nothing. It was no longer what it used to be. I investigated for about 30 minutes and there was nothing to remind me of the time I was there. Yeah. Wow. Um, they destroyed everything, right? Yeah, yeah he said, it was a wasteland. Yeah. yeah. So they destroyed wow. everything, rebuilt kind of sad it's... Soviet stuff, which is now all rusting. Yeah. Uh, mm. There's no trade... In tourism, because you can't get to Japan from there, they, they, there is no link. You have to go via Sakhalin. Yep, an eighteen-hour. So to I get from Japan about, to um, building a tunnel between uh, Sakhalin and Hokkaido, 
uh, which oh, right. okay. is not related to this necessarily, but is, mm. is kind of an interesting like cooperation, yeah. potential cooperation project between Japan and Russia in this yeah. same kind of area. But, but I mean, yeah, I don't know if uh, that's going to impact on... Um, I get the Japanese to build out that one. I wouldn't wouldn't trust the Russians to build another one. <laughs> at, yeah. at present, the, the way to get from Hokkaido to Kunashir, the southernmost island that you can see from Hokkaido if you're in exile, is to fly to Sakhalin yeah. and then get an 18-hour boat Wow. To uh, Kunishir. Well, well, actually, not quite, because uh, this is modern day, but th- there is an airport now in Iturup. So you can fly, you can fly from Sakhalin to Iturup now. Uh, and they, okay. were talk- they were talking about um, having flights to Vladivostok, Khabarovsk uh, and Kamchatska. But it seems like the only flight that's actually going is the one from Sakhalin. Uh, and importantly, you, are- you can't fly from Japan. You no, can't get there no, no, from no. Japan. There's no direct way to do it. You have to, you have to transfer. So. Uh, the, the new airport uh, has a 2.3 kilometer long uh, route and apparently it was built on uh, swamp. So apparently they have swamp on the islands. Uh, it, it was... Uh, Add to the fog. $117 million. And if if we're honest, could potentially be used for military purposes, which is probably why mm-hmm. it was built in the first place. Mm. Um, and I imagine then it's pretty just... difficult to land there though with all the... Fog. fog, yeah, most the of the fog. year round. Of yeah. course, of the fog. Yeah, and then just two last things I, I'd like to mention that um, the isolation's been good for one thing, which is the national parks are beautiful there. They've basically okay. kept intact all of the indigenous flora and fauna that would have been in Hokkaido before right. massive development and industrialization there. Yeah, and the whales and seals thrive because nobody's hunting them. So they're relatively untouched because oh, nobody yeah, really yeah, wants yeah, to go you, there. There's national yeah. parks you just can't get to except by boat. Uh, right. Even if you live on the islands, you can't get to them. Right. Um, and then one quote I came across again in that uh, documentary piece was, uh, it's very clear that the Russians living there have no interest in being given back to Japan. Mm. Um, there was a mock referendum held after the Soviet Union about it. And the, 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 the then mayor... Uh, uh, at the time the documentary was made, the mayor of uh, Yuzhno Kirilsky, the main administrative centre on, on uh, Kunishir Island, described people who even countenanced talking to Japan as follows. The traitors are just dreaming about one thing, that these islands will be Japanese. Most of these people are nobody, nothing. They don't have a good profession. They don't have good kids because their kids are the same stupid as them. So, I mean, it's quite a trenchant attitude. I don't think there's any risk of this being solved anytime soon. No, I, I'd like it, recently there's a bit of uh, back and forth between uh, between Abe and Putin, Putin about it. Uh, but uh, it, it's really it's, it's just been constant, just like back and forth, like mm, maybe we could have a talk. Yeah, we probably won't. Uh, it's just kind of one of the, the many political pawns. On, on the point of the military use of the airport, um, I, there's this great headline from uh, Sputnik News, which if you're not familiar with, is basically like Russia Today. It's just like a propaganda website uh, for Russian news. Right. Uh, in, in trivia, I've given an interview to Sputnik News. <laughs> um, wow. But of course, uh, uh, yeah, I won't, I won't tell you what about sure. uh, my, my blighted past. But uh, so just just... If you can, decode this headline from Sputnik News. 
a joint expedition by Russia's Defense Ministry and Russian Geographical Society to the island of Matua, located near the center of the Kuril Islands chain, resulted in a solid success. <sighs> in other words, right. Russians are building a new naval base on the island of Matua and intend to use it to put a lid on the Sea of Japan to kind of stop the, you know, Japanese, Koreans, Americans uh, sailing yep. ships through there. Um and according to those in the know, they intend to throw some old bombers out there as well. Uh, old, like, Soviet bombers to just kind of patrol the area and stuff. And some uh, submarines while they're at it. Yes, um, but submarines use it a lot to kind of dart in and out of the Pacific, apparently. Exactly. Um, the underground uh, facility, there would be an underground facility from before, a big airfield, network of roads, and a railway branch, the Roland Matua, are no longer fit for use and cannot mm-hmm. be restored. So um, right. up to 2001, there was a border post in the island, but it became uninhabited after that. All right. So ain't, ain't nobody uh, there. It's like, no, it's like, no we, nothing going we, on. We wrap it up. Not much going yeah, on. Wrap it. Wrap it up. Yeah. All right. Anything on uh, sports? Or... No. Nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> there are no people. No, no right. society, food, economy. Like they fish. They, there's some fishing. Like, like all of the current residents have been there since the 50s at best. Right. I have one interesting tidbit, which is the Coral Islands is the only place in the world Ooh. that has white yes. brown bears. Yes, okay, um, white brown bear. Yeah, yeah, and it's thought that uh, being white was pretty advantageous when they were fishing for salmon. Yep, because the I've coral bears so. are uh, very heavily dependent on on salmon. I don't know why necessarily being white is is better than being brown. Maybe it's all the fog. You <laughs> I really don't really care what you say here. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna edit you out of context. So oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. And there's also one perfectly shaped uh, volcanic cone in the north of the cha- uh, chain called Atlasov. Luke, you is... you got me a, a book for Christmas a few uh, two years ago of of uh, remote islands. Right. It, fe- it features the the island of Atlasov at the north of we, this guys? chain. What the hell are we? Nice. Uh, we're yeah. cool. And it yeah, it's a perfectly shaped volcanic cone. It's uninhabited. Yeah, it's perfectly Basically round. Basically, a perfectly shaped um, volcanic cone in a lake in an island. Yeah. And the Japanese really cool. are obsessed with it because it's almost Fuji-like in its perfection. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's all, yeah, yeah. It's worth looking up on um, on Google Images if, you, if you're mm-hmm. on your phone right now. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's pretty much the Coral Islands. Um, pretty bleak. Very foggy. <laughs> uh, still, dis- still disputed. Uh, not much going on, really. But, yeah. uh, you know, uh, interesting place. Place that you probably didn't even know existed before nope. you listened to this episode. It's I probably foggy. Odds yeah, are, on a given day, it is foggy. I'd, I mean, it's very. they're actually very easy to miss because if you if you kind of zoom out far enough on a world map, they just disappear. Like, oh they're that small and insignificant. <laughs> it's just not, not there anymore. But, okay. yeah, uh, that's the curls. Uh, if you want to help out the show... You can give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate that. That's the best way to give us more visibility. You can also find us on social media under 80 Days Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We are also on Patreon. That is, a, if you're not familiar, is a, is a platform where you can give uh, money to uh, content creators, podcasters, video producers, people that you like. Uh, you can find us on patreon.com slash 80 Days Podcast. Uh, you can also find out more there about how to commission an episode, how to vote on future episodes and how to get uh merchandise and uh, nice freebies and insights into the into the show if you're if you're a super fan uh and you can also email us at 80 days at gmail.com if you want to get in contact directly 
Mark, do you want to tell us more about where you can find where we can find more about you on the internet? Yep, uh, I'm on uh, at MarkBoyle86 on Twitter. If you so desperately need to get in contact with me, I I, I doubt you do. You're probably you're probably fine as you are. Uh, maybe I'll contact you. How about that? I'll I'll be calling you. I'm at the front door. Yeah, <laughs> that's me in the bushes. And Joe, you can find out more about me on, on, on timetoburn.com, where burn is spelled like an Irish surname. I'm at LukeJKelly.com or at the Luke J. Kelly on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. That's for Dania. Bye bye, Sayonara. Oh, controversial. <laughs>